0: Here we are in First Timothy chapter two, and uh, I will I will tell you. We, I was getting ready this morning, and Chastity asked me, "Are you nervous about this message?" And I said, "Oh, absolutely, I am." And uh, this is one that it's not the the conviction of what I think it says; it's more effectively communicating it. Um, and I shared this with. With, with Andy and um, with, with others this week, um, I, don't, I don't think anybody here in our congregation is going to hear this today and go, oh, I, I don't know if I agree with it. I think that there will kind of be this resolution of, well, yeah, but still want to equip you well enough through the word of what's going on with this issue. Because the issue, the topic that we're on today, because of where it is in 1 Timothy, is women in the assembly, and so then if you kind of piece where we are in Scripture with what's going on in culture, then there might be this mindset. If you're not familiar with cross life of, oh, well, the Supreme Court made this decision. Now the church is going to talk about women in the assembly and trying to do a corrective there. And that's not it at all. If you know cross life, then we are at verses 9 through 15 because... That's just where we are in the passage. We started in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and we've been moving systematically through it, and there is no way that we could have orchestrated putting these verses alongside what's what's going with what is going on in culture and history. Only God could do that. And we walk into this week, and I see all that, and I'm like, okay, Lord, just y'all, my prayer is may whoever hears this, and it, it may just be us right here in this context, but. But also our message goes out from here. But may whoever hears us hear the grace and the love and the glory of God for his church. Not a topic. Does that make sense? Like let's just, what does scripture say? Because at this point it is to women in the assembly. Last week we were delighting in, oh, look how God sovereignly like laid out scripture where he's going to talk about men on Father's Day. And we didn't orchestrate that. And, and now here we are with this passage right here in this moment of our history. And so let's look at Scripture and let Scripture be our sole focus and glorifying Him through what He has revealed to us in Scripture. And so here we are. We are in First Timothy chapter two verses 9 through 15, because last week we were in verses one through eight of chapter uh, two, and here's what 9 through 15 says. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm going to ask for a little bit extra prayer before we dive into these, okay? All right, y'all pray with me. Lord, truly be gracious to us. And Lord, as I was praying to you this morning, Lord, my soul desires to be faithful and to just not mess it up. Lord, not only in this passage, but in my life. Lord, whatever it is that you've called me to, Lord, may I be faithful and just not mess it up, but may I keep my eyes on you. And Lord, you can understand, Lord, because you see all things, that men are like grasshoppers to you. Lord, you know who we are. You remember that we are but flesh. You know that the enemy is active. You know that unity in your church is absolutely what you desire and what Satan hates. And so, Lord, you, I pray, will put a protective covering over us. Guard our hearts, guard our minds, guard our emotions. Lord, for me, I have just pray for clarity. And Lord, I pray for you also to simply stop my words whenever I speak too much. Lord, for I do not want to dishonor you or your word or your church or your gospel or your glory. But Lord, this is, this is some anti-cultural stuff here. Lord, help me today. Help us today to worship you and you alone. Lord, we love you. Amen. Okay, so, you heard the verses. What do they mean? That's that's the goal of Cross Life, is that we are an equipping church. That's the pastor, that's the elder's role, is that we're always equipping. Uh, Ephesians 4 says that he, Jesus, in his triumphal procession to heaven, to the throne, he gave gifts to men, pastors, evangelists, teachers, preachers, and he, he gave them for the equipping of the church. Not to entertain not to just motivate, not to to make you go, oh, that makes me feel good, but to equip. And so this verse should equip us, just like the previous verses should have have equipped us in the previous verses in Philippians and Galatians and Jonah and Genesis. and Like all of these should have been equipping just like this today. So with that said, we're going to approach it with, what does it say and what does it mean? So, as is typical for cross life, we're going to move through the passages. Verse 9 says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, this, this first point is character, not apparel. That's the main point. Character, not apparel. That's what the focus should be on is the character of the woman, the conduct of, of who she is, not the apparel. All right? But with that said, I also want to have this one other, there might be a lot of caveats today. This is for whenever the church gathers. Everything that we're about to talk about is for women in the assembly. That's why it's titled so clearly, Women in the Assembly. This is not necessarily for the home. This is not for the marriage. This is not in the relationship so that a husband can quote maybe one of these verses to his wife in the context of their private marriage. This is for whenever the church comes together, there is a way that the church should come together. It should come together with prayer. The men should be doing all things in verse 8 without anger or, or dispute or discontent or any brokenness. There should be that unity. And that women should also conduct themselves in that way. Likewise, bridges, not only the women here, but the men and the women, there is instruction for all the church. So this is... For whenever we come together, these are the instructions that Paul gives us. Okay, so here, what is Paul not saying? This is what I'm going to try and do throughout these verses. What is he not saying? He is not saying that women must wear drab clothing and their hair plainly. He is not saying that you must wear a potato sack and have flat hair with no makeup. That's not his point at all, okay? What Paul is saying, he is saying that a woman's apparel should not be external only and to draw attention to themselves. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to try and stick to my notes as much as possible. In Paul and Timothy's culture, wealthy women would do things that that these things that Paul is pointing to, they would adorn themselves with with costly things. They would braid their hair. Peter, actually, we're going to look at a passage in Peter here in a moment. They talk about the braiding of their hair, what they would wear, their jewelry. And the whole point of that was to draw attention to themselves. It wasn't to be there. It wasn't to be clothed for church. It was to draw attention to themselves. The way that they dressed was a sign of their wealth and their status, and they wanted everybody to know that. James even speaks of this whenever he talks about how we might show favoritism to someone who's wearing many rings whenever they walk into an assembly. Well, you look around the room, there's not people who wear many rings. My grandmothers wore many rings. I mean, there was a ring for every meaning, and every finger had multiple rings, and and that meant something. So even in James, it talks about that that aspect, And, and men would do it too, but But the whole point is like, really, it's going to come down to what's the motive for for why do you dress the way that you do? And this was going on in his culture. So just as a point of bringing this together, we, y'all, no doubt live in a very externally focused culture. Look at Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok alone. We live in a world where we can present the best lit, best filtered, best captured moment for the world to see so that we can construct and present the reality that we want people to know of us rather than the reality that truly is. That's gonna be, just so you know, if you, if you hang on with Cross Life, that gets to be part of the uncomfortable part of Cross Life is we get past all the filters. We're involved in life. We know what's going on in life and we want to know. So we always like to just warn you guys, like if you come to Cross Life, it's a place where you're gonna be known and we want you to be known. And I want you to know me. I need you to know me. I need you to know here's who I am so that you can kind of speak into that as well. But we live in this very externally driven world where we get to basically curate the reality that we want other people to know. And it can all be totally wrongly motivated, basically. And so that's what he's speaking into in that culture. That's what he's speaking into here. So he's not saying, women, you can't dress nicely. You can't wear wear a necklace. I, I taught a class... Um here at Union they, they had me teach a class for a week and a half or two weeks on the art of communication. I'm like, what like what do you want me to they they wanted me to start because of, of my role, like I engage with a lot of people and I talk and they're like, these these seniors need to know how to like shake hands, have eye contact, control their body language, they need to know how to um, respond how to engage and start conversations like these are life skills that they don't have and in that same class we taught them how to change light switches check uh, oil tire pressure how to sew on a button like it was basically everything in this one class that we can't teach you in a regular class but you kind of need to know it for life and so I was supposed to teach them the art of communication my favorite days are whenever I go over nonverbal communication like by the way if you stand like this even though this is very comfortable usually indicates that you're closed off and that you're almost done with the conversation. So then they drop their hands and they kick back like this. I'm like, whenever you lean back, and I actually had this all, I was not picking on them as they did it. I had it all written out in front of me. I said, if you ever kind of lean back in the conversation and kick back in your chair, it means that you're way too comfortable and you're not probably respecting that person's role. It's actually best if you want to engage to kind of lean in. So then they're all leaning in. I was like, and if your legs tapping, it could be a sign that you're actually no longer entering the conversation. You're kind of uncomfortable. And so then they do this. And then um, one of them, was just kind of doing this. And I said, and by the way, whenever you touch your face, it actually is a nonverbal cue that you might be uncomfortable in that situation. And finally, they all just went, we don't know what we can do. And I said, I know, it's kind of frustrating. That's not what Paul is trying to do here, ladies. He is not trying to say, you can't wear pearls, you can't wear jewelry, you can't wear nice clothing, because in that, I think, becomes a tendency of here's everything I cannot do. He's just saying you should be clothed with good works. Whenever you're clothed with good works, whenever your character's right, then everything else will be right. And so one commentator, and I'm paraphrasing because I thought, yes. Um, He says, a woman's external attire reflects her internal condition. And I thought that's a really good way I think of summing that up. Granted, I know fully well, I'm speaking this as a man, right? I totally get that. But I get the gospel truth right there. A woman's external attire, how she presents herself, reflects, it absolutely does reflect her internal condition. Here's what, in Luke 7, here's what Jesus said. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. The heart of all of that is that the heart is always the matter. In how we dress and how we act and how we present, the heart's always the matter. And so if you get to the to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. It always goes back to the heart. You've heard it said, don't, 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 don't. And I'm saying this. And Jesus gives a fuller understanding. The heart's the matter. Okay, so then what should be the apparel of the godly woman? He says women should adorn themselves in respectable attire with modesty and self-control. So women from a heart humbly rooted in the gospel which communicates that a holy God has redeemed you from darkness and brought you into His holy light and presence then clothe yourself with two things modesty and self-control modesty in other words it does not seek to draw attention to itself i think nice clothes are nice chass and i went on a date the other night she looked amazing like i was i had it planned i was in khaki shorts and a t-shirt and she went walked by and she goes you're dressed fine i'll be back and then she came out and she looked fantastic as I was like, "Nope, I'm going to change so we <laughs> want to look nice we were going on a date that was the occasion right that was the occasion with modesty do not seek to draw attention to yourself alone whenever we gather it's not for ourselves alone it's for Christ we're coming as his body to glory in him self-control a fitting composure that is again rooted in the meek character that we are called to have in Christ Jesus why did you clothe the way clothe yourself in the way you did in modesty and self-control. Like that should be the heart. He says, with what is proper for women who profess godliness. That's it. I profess to be a follower of Christ, therefore then can I dress and present myself in this way. I think that's so much bigger than clothing. I think that's so much bigger than jewelry. I think that's so much bigger than women. I think that the way that we speak, the way that we act, the way that we dress, the way that we present ourselves should always be because we profess godliness. Therefore, we present ourselves in this way. In this context, he is talking to the women what is proper for women who profess godliness. And he says, here's what the clothing of a godly woman is. Good works. He says that... Whatever is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. rather than what adorns, the external women should adorn themselves with good works. That should be the heart matter. That should be what, what you are striving for. That's something, y'all, by the way, that, that I can't see. I might see the evidence of good works, but good works are, they, they are often private. They're often humbly before the Lord. The good works are what God sees in His full scope of eternity and with all of His eyes on man. And that is beautiful adorning to Him. Y'all, modern fashion, y'all know this, it can have the tendency, most absolutely, to point attention to the person. But godliness and good works point attention to God. That's the heart of it. Well, Chas and I were on our date, we were walking through Target and we were about to go down a line and I just went the other way. And Chess looked at me, and she goes, why? And I said, because I don't like that. And there was a, a woman there who was dressed way too much, skin showing. She's like, why is that? I said, because I just don't like it. Like, as a godly person, like we, that fashion is not honoring in any way. It drew attention to the person, but it did not draw attention to God. The woman's character of godliness and faithfulness is what she should be known for and should find delight in. That's, is everybody good? Okay, because Peter's going to pick this up. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, listen to this. You would think that Peter and Paul must be tapped into the same source. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's, that's a whole sermon too. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... He says in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 3 Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, Sarah's children. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I love how Peter does that. Peter says this let your adorning be, listen to this, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Y'all, you know, let the internal affect the external and then external not simply drape the external. Like that's kind of the, the, the context here. I pastorally am telling you, and I think the, the, the husband should absolutely echo this, that there is a transcendent beauty in the woman who fears God and sees herself as the daughter of the holy God and clothes herself in that reality. Okay, next point. Peacefulness and not authority. Verse 11. This is such a fun passage to preach to, just so you know. If my face ever looks like, oh my, then um, I will do my, my best to put on a smile. Okay. Y'all, this is all about peacefulness, not, not just authority. So verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. What is Paul not saying? He is not saying that women cannot speak at all in church, nor is he saying that they can, cannot speak even a little bit. That's not what he's saying. What Paul is saying is it is important for women to learn in a spirit of peace and submission, okay? Because context matters. In that culture, he's writing to women in a Roman culture. We are in America where, and, and across the world, you even see the elevating status of women, and there's equality in many realms of life where we're reaching that equality in many, if not all, cultures. And so with that, with that elevation, with that esteem, and that regard for women, that did not exist at all in the Roman culture. In many ways, Christianity did a great thing for women in that, and we're going to read it in Galatians, it, it drew some equanimity between the two genders. Okay, so Paul is writing to women in this Roman culture where they were not highly esteemed, nor did this, nor learned. It wasn't their role to learn. It wasn't their role to be educated. They didn't have that opportunity. So a lot of what Paul is writing to also is that the women need to learn? They needed to learn in that church because they hadn't been taught these things. But he says, whenever you learn, or whenever you learn in this culture, learn quietly and with all submission. So I do think that that is one aspect. The women in that congregation needed to learn. Paul has often been accused y'all of being anti-women, but that's not right. Okay, he is—he's not anti-women, but he is very corrective in his instruction for women. But also for men, for the church, for marriages, for false teachers, for pastors, he's writing a corrective for all of us, because, excuse me, because we all need this, because you and I, if we're not careful, will live out what we saw in the book of Judges, where it says over and over again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Y'all, and the the meaning of that is it was evil. You and I live in a day where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, and it's not good. So Paul is not just like correcting women. He is here, but he will correct marriages and pastors and, and spiritual gifts, like he writes a corrective for all so that we can all live for the glory of God and not ourselves alone. So the same Paul who wrote this verse is also the same one who wrote Galatians 3.28. You should write that down or turn there very quickly, Galatians 3.28. Galatians 3.28 The same Paul who wrote Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness in 1 Timothy is the same Paul who wrote Galatians 3.28 where it says There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's the same guy. Same one saying that there's equal dignity here. Okay? He's the same Paul who is writing under... under sec, he's the same, I'm sorry, the same Paul who wrote this in 1 Timothy. is the same Paul who wrote 2 Timothy 3.16, which you're probably familiar with. You'll, you'll know it whenever I say it. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul only wrote what he was moved to write because it is breathed out by God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We have to wrestle with that. So, whenever he says that a woman is to learn with all submissiveness, he is speaking yes to women in the context of the passage, but he's actually speaking it to all believers. Just as we looked how men should pray with anger—I'm sorry, with without anger and without dispute—then all of us should be learning with submissive hearts. Okay, this should be within all of us. All right, we talked about the cultural context. The idea is that evidently some of the women in their new freedom that they had in the gospel, they were taking some of this freedom and it was becoming disruptive to the culture of the church. That seems to be what most commentators hold on to because now... They are free. Now there's neither male nor female. Now they can learn. Now they can speak. And I'm going to give you a passage here in just a moment where we see that women have been used powerfully by God himself very directly for his glory. And I'm going to give you those passages so that, and by the way, all my notes are always available. You just have to shoot me a text saying, hey, can you send me your notes? And I'll, I'll always send them to you. You can find all the typos too. Okay, um. But basically, their conduct, their, the way they dressed, the way they presented themselves, their conduct was disrupting the unity and the reputation of the church. And he's having to address this. If he doesn't address it, it's not loving to the church. 1 Timothy 3.15, um, which is in the passage that Jared's going to be preaching in a couple of weeks, okay, says, Paul writes, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. None of these verses are isolated. He is clarifying that there are ways that we are to act whenever we come in with one another. In the assembly, there are things that you and I need to know. Why, don't they, why doesn't everybody do this all over, uh, all over town and all the churches if it's in the Bible? Because the Bible's not honestly being preached in every context. We're picking topics we like and we're, we're, we're passing over passages like this that are kind of hard and very intimidating and very humbling. But y'all, it's this disruptive spirit that Paul is addressing. That's, if you understand that, he's trying to address this disruptive spirit. These are women who wanted to be noticed and they wanted to be first, and Paul's trying to correct that. Their disruption was clear, their desire was noticeable, and it was noticeable in their dress, their character, and their conduct. Now, whenever it says with all submissiveness, here's what I think is very helpful. We don't have good translations of the original to the English, but I thought this was really helpful. The word translated subjection in 1 Timothy 2.11 is translated submitting and submit in Ephesians 5.21-22 through and Colossians 3.18. I'm, I'm relying on commentators here. I don't know all this. all right. But I love what they ultimately get to. It literally means, because they know a whole lot more than I do, it literally means this, to rank under. So this idea of submission that our culture has, this means to rank under, okay, now bear with me. Rank has to do with order and authority, not, listen, with value or ability. Rank has to do with order and authority, not value or ability. A colonel is higher in rank than a private, but that does not necessarily mean that the colonel is a better man than the private. It only means that the colonel has a higher rank and therefore more authority in that position. That's that idea there. Okay, we're going to be moving closer and closer to trying to pull this together. With that said, Paul is not in any way saying that women cannot serve the church and be used by God. For example, you ready for this? Here's how we see women. Peter quoted the prophet Joel, who stated, uh, and this is all um, this is from a couple of commentaries that I've spliced together. Peter quoted the prophet Joel, who stated that. God would pour out His Holy Spirit on both men and women, and then both sons and daughters would prophesy. That's in Joel 2, 28-29. We see it in Acts 2, 16-18. There are many women prophets in the Old Testament. In Exodus, Judges, Kings, Nehemiah, and Isaiah, I've got references for all those for you if you'd like them, we see female women prophets. In the New Testament, Philip the Evangelist had four daughters who prophesied. That was in Acts 21. There were devoted women who ministered to Jesus in the days of His earthly ministry. We see that in Luke, in multiple verse, or multiple passages. They were present at His crucifixion and burial, and it was a woman who first heralded the glorious news of His resurrection. In the books of Acts, we meet Dorcas. I still think that that's not a great name uh, these days, but it's an unfortunate. But it's, her name is Dorcas, and we see that. And Lydia, great name, Priscilla. We see all them in Acts at different points and godly women in the Berean and Thessalonian churches. We see them throughout Acts in the different books of the Bible. Paul greeted at least eight women in Romans 16, and Phoebe, who carried the Roman epistle to its destination, was a deaconess in the local church, Romans 16:1. A deaconess. Women are used powerfully and wonderfully by God, and yet there's still this issue of headship that we're ultimately going to center on in the very, very end. So I don't want you to misread miss here, Paul. If you miss here anything, then you need to mishear me. But don't doubt Paul, don't doubt Peter, don't doubt God. Anything that is not rightly communicated will fall on me and not on them. But there's a catalog that we can see from the beginning to the end, and that's only a sampling of it. So what's it all come down to? Headship and not subjugation. Nobody uses the word headship anymore. Like I can't remember the last time I walked through Walmart and somebody was like, well, you know, the headship, and the... nobody talks like that. So the idea of headship is simply the one who is the head over it, okay? So, here's why he says to learn with this, and this idea, by the way, of, of silence is not, and we're just it's not this idea of complete silence. It's actually translated in, um, in another passage. The same word is translated as peaceableness. So, let her learn in peace. That's the idea, I truly believe, that Paul is driving at, and that we need to take from it. Okay, here's why. He says, whew, okay, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, so what is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying that women are not allowed to teach at all, and he is not saying that Adam was not complicit in the original sin at all. It's not saying that. It reads that way, but that's not what it's saying. We've got to scripture must always be the best commentary for other scriptures. So if you take all of scripture together and not isolate these verses, then all of this starts to take on a much richer pattern. What Paul is saying, Paul is saying that women are to teach, and they are to teach other women, especially younger women how to serve and love their families, including their husbands and their, ch- uh, their children. We also see in 2 um, Timothy, that uh, Timothy was taught by his mother and grandmother. This is not a matter of gender. That's what we tend to make it in our culture. This is all about gender. It's not a matter of gender. It's a matter of headship. Okay, so... I'm just checking myself here. Okay. While we could argue today that this is no longer relevant and many churches wouldn't hold to it. That's why we see women and female pastors, they, they see this one purely as cultural at the time and therefore no longer applicable to the church. I do hold that it's absolutely very applicable to the church for us today. And I want to walk you through why that is. But keep in mind, the churches have divided over this, but I will hold to this scripture because 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. For me to negate this scripture means that I have to argue or not believe that this was um, breathed out by God. And the other one is, I know that the, the, the apostle who wrote it wrote Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So this is, this is not a matter of enlightenment or, or denigration of of a gender or a sex. It's not a, a matter of chauvinism. It is a matter of headship. For all scripture testifies that in the beginning, God created mankind in his image. And that included, hear me, male and female. Men and women are both equally and wonderfully and fearfully made in his image. He chose to express his image through male and female both. Okay, therefore, we as a church must Always affirm the equal dignity of men and women and affirm the equal identity of men and women being made in the image of God. If you take nothing else from that, then I hope you don't miss that. Now, there's equal dignity, but there are separate roles. That's where I think the confusion comes. There's equal dignity, but there are different roles. We confuse that, and when we confuse it, we confuse the original design of headship that God instituted in marriage and in the church. So, equal dignity. Okay, side note for the geeks and the nerds out there who just need to know this. Okay, there are two terms whenever you start talking about women in the church. There's a term called egalitarianism, and the other one is complementarianism. Egalitarianism holds that women, being the same before God as Galatians states in its verse, are able to perform all the duties and roles that men are allowed to. That's egalitarianism. And, it's, and they will scripturally support it. They will hold to these firm convictions. And I believe, y'all, just so you know, they can genuinely and fully and wonderfully love Christ and the gospel and make much of Him. The other term is complementarianism, which is that God created male and female, and then while they have equal dignity, they have separate roles that complement each other. Chas and I complement one another and praise the Lord because she had to correct me. Last night I I was talking and she was talking and we were not saying the same thing, and she finally clarified to me, because she was actually very right, um, that I have sometimes this obsessive nature, just sometimes, that sometimes I have this obsessive nature, and once I lock onto something, I'm gonna see it through. And this is like in in my work, in my personal life, in, in an issue, like it it kind of gets in, in my brain, and I just kind of hold on to it. And she was like, I just I feel like I need to correct you in that moment. I was like, no, thank you. Like I I do need that correction. She compliments me in that way. She also compliments me, compliments me in so many other ways. She doesn't need to fulfill my role. She needs me to fulfill my role, and I need her to fulfill her role so that together we are one, right? That's the idea of complementarianism, is that as you and I sit here together, you and I, men and women and children, we are made in the image of God, and we have equal dignity before the throne. I, as the pastor, am not elevated in any other way over you before the throne of Christ. His blood is not richer on me. His spirit is not greater on me. It is given equally into all. A different proportioning of gifts amongst the amongst the different roles that he has called us to. Okay. So I am a complementarian, just so you know, because I see the pattern of complementarianism throughout Scripture and believe verses like three twenty eight must be held in that tension. Scripture must always be the best commentary for Scripture. Okay, so whenever we read Titus, we're going to see that the women are to teach other women and that this is good and, that, and it's going to echo that, that there are different roles in that way. And whenever, whenever Paul's writing this, then there, there might be this tendency in men to go, well, then the women need to do children's church and we need to stay out here. So very clearly, side note, men, this does not mean that only women can serve in children's. In fact, our other elder is back there right now. There have been times whenever someone else will fill the pulpit, and I will go back there. Why? Because, number one, the elders are the chief servants of the church and should be serving wherever there is a need. It's not for deacons alone. The first gift that God gave to the church were the pastors. They are the first servants of the church. Therefore, and we didn't line this out. I actually didn't know Andy was going to be back in children's, but whenever I heard that, I was like, praise the Lord, because this would have been an awkward moment. Okay, All right. But men need to be serving in children's because these young ones need to see grown men who love the Lord tell them that it is good to love the Lord. We don't get to abdicate that responsibility to make much of Christ to our young children. So, men, we have sign-up sheets over here. And some of you men are doing great. Like, y'all stay in that rotation and and keep it up. And and women, thank you in that. I keep saying it's a matter of headship. Here we go, because I know that those benches get really uncomfortable. So I really want to try and push through this. It was going to be two sermons. It's one. Paul gave five verses. We don't need to give five weeks. All right. I keep saying that, that it's a matter of headship because, and I think that when we see that, then all of these actually take shape. If we take all these other verses apart from the idea of headship, then it does become, I think, a gender issue. Whenever we understand it's all about headship and this is where I land on it all, then, then I think everything else makes sense. One commentator puts it wonderfully this way. In regard to the church, there are three levels of headship whenever we gather. I never thought through all this. This is what my brain went, like it brought it all together. That's why I like reading men so much smarter than me. Okay, three levels of headship. Christ is over the church, the pastor is over the congregation, and the husband is over the wife. Paul is emphasizing again and again the principle of headship. The local church that refuses to recognize this principle may create confusion. There is a threefold headship in the local assembly. The headship of Christ over the body, the headship of the pastor over the flock, and the headship of the man over the woman. And there's verses for all these. Again, I will send you my notes. Okay, as we've gathered here today, we are operating under three levels of headship. I don't think headship is the issue, by the way. I'll come back to that at the end. Headship's the topic we've got to look at, but whenever everything breaks down, I don't think headship's the issue. I think it's going to come down to trust. All right, so Jesus Christ is over the church. We see this in Colossians 1.18. You might just jot this down. I do want to be mindful that I know that this is a big topic. Colossians 1.18, and he, Jesus Christ, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So everything that we do as a body of Christ locally and universally is all in submission to Jesus Christ being the head. This is what we call Christ's headship over the church. Okay? The pastor is over the congregation. Acts 20 28 helps us with this. And there are many other verses, which, by the way, next week we get to lay, we're going to be talking about elders and the following week deacons and the different qualities for these, these men and individuals who are um, qualified for these roles. But Acts 20 28 is one verse we can use. Pay careful attention. Um, Luke is writing, pay careful attention to yourselves as he's recording this to all the flock. He's writing to the elders, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. So when we gather as a congregation, there's not only the headship of Christ over the body. There is also the overseers, the elders, the pastor. um, They are charged with oversight and headship over the congregation. This is what we call the pastor's headship over the church. And then 1 Corinthians 11.3 is the husband uh, has headship over the wife. 1 Corinthians 11.3 But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So in in the creation of all things, we see this order from Genesis to the end that um, God created man first and then He created woman from man so that she could be His helpmate and they together are both made in the image of God. Corinthians goes on to say in verses 8 and 9, man was not made from woman, but woman for man from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. This is a husband's headship over his wife. Equal dignity. She is a daughter of God, a child of God, just like I am. Doesn't matter if somebody has been saved for one month or 11 years, equal dignity in that moment whenever the blood covers us. An unbelieving world of men and women, as biblically defined, are made in the image of God, though they may be lost. They're made in the image of God. We must seek to redeem that. That's why we have to go out. Okay. So when the church comes together, there's three levels of headship. There's got to be that equal submission. So are y'all, are y'all good? Like, I'm, oh, we got tons of time. Okay, we're good. I set a timer today, and I never really do that. We're totally good. We're way under time. I allotted an hour and a half. i got like an hour to go. Okay. (laughs) All right, so then, why is the woman and the wife not to have teaching authority over men? This is where it gets a little bit deeper. As I preach these things, number one, well, sorry, because in the creation order and the principle of headship, she is not first or to be first. Are there very, please hear me, are there very godly women who know so much more than men? Absolutely there are. Are there godly women who know so much more of Scripture and have more wisdom than I do? Absolutely. They're in this room. They're all over the place. Warren Wearsby even said that he surrounded himself with godly women that he would seek insight from. And he said, but what I found is that godly women never sought the authority. They just wanted to come alongside. I thought that was what I've seen with Brother Bill, um, who was a a grandfather in the faith, and and watching his ministry. I I see a whole lot of Brother Bill and Warren Wearsby in one another. So that's why I think... My heart is drawn to him. Absolutely, women are godly and they can know so much more, and they can have full, vibrant, effective ministries, but they are not to serve in any authoritative capacity over men in the assembly of the church. Rather, they, in their godliness, are to serve to the fullness of their role and to trust God to use them effectively. Now, as I preach all this, there are moments as I look up where I'm seeing this, and, you know, and every now and then I get the. You know, I get one of those. I'm just joking. Nobody's done that except for, except for Mike. Okay, so the matter, I don't think, is that it doesn't resonate. I think, I think we all see the logic. We see the Scripture. I think, I believe, that there's that, that unity there. So I don't think headship is the issue. I think it's what we need to know, that that's the, that's the issue. It comes down to a matter of trust is what I think the breakdown is. We're going to be pushing into this. Does the church trust the headship of Christ? Is it willing to submit? Does the congregation trust the headship of the pastor or the elders? Is it willing to submit? Does the wife trust the headship of the husband? Is she willing to submit? These matters of trust are what only God can address in our lives, for they are at a secret heart level that I can't know. Where there is no trust, we grasp to control the situation and the relationship in any way that we can. We want to put someone that we trust there, and who do we trust the most? Ourselves, our perspective, our personality, our understanding. When there is a lack of trust, we insert ourselves to control the situation. So to me, talking about the gender, and and the genders, and I think it all comes down under headship, I think the breakdown then becomes a matter of trust. And so that, if trust is the issue, saints. I'm saying humbly submit that to God and let him work out in you and you work out with him what needs to be done at a secret level that I can't affect. Then the mysterious verse, verse 15. Why do I call it the mysterious verse? Because it's confusing. It's it's weird and mysterious and it made me feel really good whenever I read other commentators who went, this is odd verse. We're there's a lot of confusion over this verse. And I was like, okay, good. I feel better. So, it says, yet she will be, after all this, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. All right. So, I believe my understanding of, of, of studying this and where my, first, or my heart first went whenever I read this is what I trust the most. And then through reading different commentators in different aspects of it, here's what I genuinely, really, truly have total peace with it. It meaning, I believe that it harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter three. I think so. Genesis chapter three, and then I think 1 Corinthians chapter eleven helps us. So, if you will, please go back to Genesis chapter three. We're gonna be in verses fourteen through sixteen. What does it mean whenever it says, "Yet she will be, yet she will be saved through childbearing"? if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I think Genesis 3, while you're turning there, is fitting because Paul has just, just referred to, in the previous verses, Adam and Eve. He just talked about Adam and Eve's original sin. And Genesis 3 records the curse that God places on the serpent, on woman, and on man. I also think that we hear in Genesis 3 why 1 Timothy has the potential to be the landmine temptation for so many women in our churches today. I also believe that 1 Corinthians 11 will help us because it balances the headship and the symbiotic God-designed relationship between men and women. So Genesis 3 is where we're going to start. We're going to end in 1 Corinthians 11. But whenever I go back to Genesis 3, 1 Timothy begins to make sense. Because in Genesis 3, verse 14, it begins, God is cursing the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Notice how offspring is singular there. He, singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Okay, some interesting things from those passages that that you need to know. Number one, the serpent is cursed, and he has to crawl on his belly the rest of his days. It's just good to know that. Okay, number two, Genesis 15 is the very first promise of the coming Messiah. Verse 15, where it talks about the offspring in the singular and the he in the singular. That's what we call the proto-evangelicum. Fun fact. Okay. Proto-evangelicum, drop that in Walmart whenever you're like walking through. People are like, what'd you talk about at church today? Uh, we talked about this, we talked about that, we talked about the proto-evangelicum. Okay, so it is it basically it's the first evangelistic moment. It's the first time that Christ is promised. In verse 15, Christ doesn't come on the scene until here, about right here, approximately. He's promised on the first few pages of Scripture. Okay, so Proto-Evangelicum, first promise of Jesus Christ. Number three, the woman's pain in childbearing would be multiplied. The pain is the curse, not the childbearing. I just want to clarify that because I did not know that in this curse that that had been misconstrued in many ways. Childbearing was already taking place. It was already part of the original design. The pain increasing is the curse. Now, then it gets to this one. That passage where it says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I think that this is what's going on in First Timothy. I think it's probably what has happened in our marriages over time, since that moment. But first, the New American Standard says, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Valid. But it does lose a lot of the meaning of what's actually being portrayed there. The ESV says, your desire as a wife shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The New Living Translation says, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. So in the curse... Not only was childbearing, uh, the, the pain there, um, increased, but also the marriage relationship was broken. And it's part of the curse. There would no longer be this peaceful, like innate unity in the marriage. It would take work and the the wife would be for her husband, it would be like for the role of her husband is what that more fully means. It would be for that role of authority is what the wife would strive for, to be contrary to your husband or to control your husband, but he will or and he shall, depending on whichever translation you, you use, will rule over you. So I think that that's why First Timothy's relegation of women to learn under the authority of men does have some sort of long Underlying historic component within, like that's within us. There's this curse that has affected the entire world. The marriage relationship was upended because Eve wanted to have control over Adam, and in a moment she did. In that moment she had control. He chose to listen to Eve and not to God. He chose, that's his sin. He was complicit. By the way, scripture says, and she gave it to the man who was with her, right? He could have stopped at any point, too, but he did not. Okay. I think that there is a strong temptation in our culture for Eve's desire to be over her husband and his role to be manifested in the church. Nor, y'all, can we ignore the influence that a wife can have over her husband's perspective and leadership. i want to repeat this one more time. We cannot ignore the influence that a wife can have over her husband's perspective and leadership. Numbers 12 is a great glimpse into this. Miriam and Aaron, Aaron the high priest who has walked alongside Moses and God spoke to Moses and Aaron. Miriam and Aaron approach Moses and they say, you think God has only spoken to you? And they question Moses' leadership. And then if you read a little bit further, this greatly displeases the Lord. He brings Aaron and Miriam before him and he curses Miriam with leprosy. Not Aaron. I think that kind of points to where where was the grumbling, where was that, that influence coming from? I think that that's something we've got to look at. Women are incredibly influential and scripture makes no uh, it doesn't slide that in any way. Look at Abraham and Sarah. Look at Look at, look at all the relationships. The women are incredibly influential because the husbands so greatly love their wives and we're complimenting one another. Wives, you have an incredible ministry and an incredible influence over your husband even if you don't understand that. But you've got to be careful because there is in that curse a desire to control an influence. But he shall rule over. And I think that whenever you start talking about headship in the church and male leadership... Over uh, and, and male leadership, I would say biblically qualified male leadership, I think that that curse still has that tendency of pushing against. When we scale back the principle of headship, this all comes back in line. The wife is to be submissive to the husband, who is submissive to the pastor or elders, who is submissive to Christ. When everybody is working in submission in their proper roles, then everything will lend towards unity, and God will be honored. So that was Genesis 3. I think that the curse affects some of this. But then I think we balance it with 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to see this, please. So 1 Corinthians, and I promise you, we're, we're landing the plane at this point, okay? All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 11 through 12. First Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 11 and 12. 11 says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. In the Lord, okay? Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor, or, I'm sorry, of man nor man of woman. Now look at verse 12. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman and all things are from God. So there's yet another clarification of this. Both are dependent on one another. And while woman was made for man, now man is born of woman. There is a relationship that is dependent upon one another, and we see it in the marriage, we see it in the church, we see it in life. I rest all of this interpretation then of this verse, verse 15. So go back to 15, and I'll I'll pull it all together. This is the verse, and, and maybe I will get five years down the line and go back and listen to this sermon and be like, Okay, I should have tweaked that a little bit. But this is an odd verse. And so this is how I really see all of this pulling together, taking Scripture with Scripture and the Gospel. Okay, so here's where I rest on it. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I think that does harken all the way back to the curse in which the woman's curse would be increased in pain through childbearing. This was the curse, it was the pain. Yet there would be salvation through it. Through this painful curse childbearing, men and women would be born, and God's glory would still be able to spread throughout the earth. This is bringing all of Genesis 3 up to now. But also through this childbearing, the Messiah would be born. And his birth would herald a kingdom of hope, forgiveness, restoration, and eternal security. And the wife or woman whose hope is seated in her faith in Jesus Christ, she will adorn herself with a quiet spirit of godliness, and she will raise her children to love God, love others, and treasure Christ. As she does this, then the evidence of her faith will be clear, as will her salvation. A mother who treasures Christ will echo his love and majesty to her kids." She will not be saved by their faith. That's not what it means. Her genuine faith will be evident through her children for they will exhibit the imperishable beauty of her quiet godly life. It was through the curse yo. Uh, yo. It was yo. It was through the curse. It was through the curse though of the painful childbearing that Christ entered the world and brought salvation to all. He entered by the curse. I never really fully thought through this. But he entered by the curse. He bore the curse. He became the curse for us. He put the curse aside for us so that we could know his grace. And the effect of that in men's life is that we would lift holy hands without anger or dispute. And the effect of that in women's life is that they would trust the headship over them while they accomplish the good works that God intended for them. We made it through the passage. Two thoughts that I think come to mind in our capacity right here. Has cross life then violated this principle? This is the conclusion. Has cross life violated this principle because we allow women to pray out loud and read scripture? Absolutely not. We are all equal in dignity before God. And the full account of mankind that is made in the image of God is that there are males and females. In the reading of scripture and prayer, women are not exercising authority over men in our congregation, but they are operating under the oversight of the male leaders who, biblically qualified male leaders who have asked them to serve in this capacity. The authority still rests on the biblically qualified, equipped men who have been and are being called to be elders and pastors. So there's that operation underneath that headship. Is it sinful or wrong for a woman missionary to have authority over men as she goes to serve? No or maybe not exactly. I don't know. I think there's a whole lot of grace for the things that aren't perfect. I would say no, because the passage we just read is for the assembly of the saints. If there are not biblically qualified men to serve and to spread the glory to the nations, then she is fulfilling the role necessary to that end. She is seeking, not seeking to have authority, she's seeking to save souls and there's an eternal difference there. She is seeking to make His glory known on the mission field where there are no men making that known. If she and her husband go, then she may be more equipped verbally or as an orator than he is. And so there's a grace there that must be worked out under the headship of Christ. Also, these are directions, again, for when the church gathers, not necessarily for the mission field or other arenas of the Christian life. For example, just so you know, in Acts, Aquila and Priscilla are seen seen teaching and correcting a soldier in his house. There is a great freedom there. It's when we gather. Last question. Can we pray? Absolutely, let's do that. Lord God, for anything, anything that is spoken in error, Lord, before you, like as the audience of one, Lord, I I am sorry. And I pray that you quickly convict me and forgive me, Lord, for any good, any clarity, any like um, smoothness, any memory, any wisdom, any knowledge that came, any good that came out of this sermon, Lord, is solely You. But Lord, I do pray that we don't just know this, but we're equipped by it. Or that we're challenged by it. Because here's what 1 Timothy reveals to me. You deeply care about Your church. And in Revelation, there will be a great wedding where the bride of Christ, the church, will be brought to you, the groom, and forever and ever and ever we will be with you. Lord, until then, teach us what kind of people we should be for your glory, not for ourselves. Lord, one day the, 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 the church of Cross Life, Lord, one day will pass away. There, where there's not even a sign now, but Lord, if there were a sign, then, then it will crumble and fade and be washed away. Cross Life will just be a name in history that people will forget. That's why we do what we do, though, is so that you will be known. You are what we want to glory in. You are what we strive to be more for. You are our God, and we are your people. You are bringing us home. Teach us how to conduct ourselves in the proper way until we see you face to face. Lord, we love you. I pray for your grace and your favor and your continued wisdom as we continue moving forward. Amen.